Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And happy 2019, everybody. I hope that you concluded 2018 on a positive note and began 2019 on an equally, if not um, greater, positive note. So couple things. Um, I have a lot of stuff to talk about. There's been a lot of Stephen King news. I wanted to record earlier in the year. I haven't recorded since November. It's been a while. I do apologize, everyone. Life has been very, very busy. Um, and then I meant to record earlier um, in like January. But honestly, uh, for those of you living in the uh, Northeast, the weather this year, this winter has been really weird. Um, it can't make up its mind whether it wants to be freezing um, or like spring. And so like the fluctuation in temperatures is causing all sorts of sicknesses and illnesses. And since December 28th, I have had this, I don't, you can probably uh, hear it in my voice. My, my throat doesn't uh, feel uh, that, that great. But since uh, December 28th, I have had this, this nonstop cough. Uh, that um, lingered for all of January, and then towards the end of January, it morphed uh, into a pretty aggressive head cold, um, and it just it just started. It you know I have felt weak uh, all 2019, um, and just irritable. So uh, you know I I'm still I, I think that you can hear it. Like I said, it, my my voice is is still a little bit raspy, and the cough hasn't still quite gone away. Um, so that's that's why I haven't. It's one of the reasons why I haven't recorded. Um, and so what I want to do today is uh, I want to read some listener emails, which I'm going to do at the end of this episode. What I want to do is uh, start with some personal news. Let's kind of segue into some Stephen King news. So for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you might have seen uh, a tweet that I I posted the other day. Um, I sent a picture of one of my furry co-hosts, the two of whom you can hear them click clacking around the floor um, right now. So I, I uh, put out a post um, showing one of my furry co-hosts, Sunny, um, and just asking everyone to send some uh, positive vibes our way uh, because on Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day evening, um, Poor little guy uh, all of a sudden started having seizures, and he had never had seizures before, and uh, it was pretty scary. Um, and he's such a happy, loving little guy. To see him um, so helpless, uh, it was it was awful. So he had three uh, seizures in rapid succession, um, and part of the seizure process uh, is disorientation, loss of limb control, loss of bowel control. So he urinated, defecated, fell in it. Um, he was wandering around in circles when he did have the strength to get up. It was just awful. It was awful. So I, I wound up taking him to the, the emergency vet. My wife and I didn't wind up leaving until about 2.30 in the morning. And uh, it was a roller coaster ride. Um, at first, they thought that he had a brain tumor, which would have, uh, you know, spoken and uh, explained the uh, weight loss that he had had recently and um, they said that we could give him anti-seizure medication and just kind of wait it out you know and uh, you know we kind of accepted that and then by the end of the night his blood work came in and it got worse and they said that he uh, had elevated uh, enzymes in the liver um, that were through the roof it turns out he's a diabetic really bad is um, those numbers were terrible, and 
you know, they they just left us um, very not in a hopeful um, uh, position or prognosis, and they were recommending uh, to euthanize them. And uh, for anyone that's been put in that situation, it's not an, an easy one. And you know, he's been a healthy dog um, up until now. Like I said, he's kind of lost some weight uh, rapidly over the last month, but. This is new to us. We hadn't uh, had time to really come to grips with this concept or this decision. So, um, you know, we had seen him and it was bad. It, you know, on Valentine's Day, the seizures and everything was bad. So it would have made sense on some level to go through with it and put him down that night because it had been so bad and we wouldn't want him to go through anything like that again. But I wasn't, I don't know, maybe it's selfish of me. I wasn't ready to say goodbye. I wasn't willing to give up on him yet. So we asked for enough medication to get us through the weekend and um, we took him home so we could get him comfortable and have him say goodbye to um, maybe our other dog, my other furry co-host and our friends and family and our daughter. Um, So it was very emotional. Uh, You know, Friday was very, very emotional. You know, we were accepting, we were starting to accept um, his death. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure that he was comfortable. Now, as I record this, uh, the little guy is pretty much back to normal. So I don't know what that means. But I, I mean, we were ready to, you know, pull the trigger the other night. Um, we have an appointment with our vet on Tuesday. So fingers crossed, you know, we, you know, we're able to, you know, work with this medication that he's on um, and prolong his life. Um, you know, if it's for a month, it's for a month. If it's for a year, it's for a year. And every day that we're going to have with him is, is a blessing. Um, so I want to thank everyone that, you know, uh, you know, sent out all the positive vibes because it could have helped. Um, he is in much greater spirits and health now than he was two days ago. Uh, I mean, the difference is night and day. Um, so there's, we have a plan, um, we have meds, and I hope that this is enough to, to work because um, he is a really good dog, and he is really, really sweet, and he's the happiest little guy um, I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And like I said, I'm not ready to, uh, to cross that, that barrier because when it comes to, you know, when it comes to the, the loss of an animal, anyone that's experienced it, uh, it's, it's terrible. Um, but thankfully for me, um, all of my animals had passed naturally. I never was in the position of having to make that decision. And I just, I can't, especially, I can't explain to a three-year-old what death is yet. You know, I don't want her to ask where Sonny is and me have to explain it. It's, uh, you know, I am 30, I'm going to be 38, um, I'm two years older than Lewis Creed was in Pet Cemetery, where he was faced with similar um, dilemmas um, at the early early part of the the book um, in, in in discussing death. And so, Pet Cemetery has been on my mind a lot over the last couple of days. Um, you know, dealing with the, the the impending mortality of one of my dogs. Um, who is the younger of my my two dogs, which doesn't bode well for for maybe. Um, so I've been you know thinking a lot and been watching a lot of old videos when they were puppies, and um, time has flown. Time has been flying. I just remember when we first got them, and 
that was a long time ago now. And, um, you know, like I said, now we have a three-year-old and we're going to have to start to have, you know, hard conversations with her and introduce her to concepts that are a part of life and are natural, but nevertheless steal the innocence away from childhood and, you know, innocence. And I've been thinking a lot about Pet Cemetery and um, Rachel Creed's uh, disdain and disgust and hatred of death as a concept and her rejection of it um, and not accepting it as not necessarily a part of life, but something that she has to um, accept um, and how she didn't want to expose Ellie uh, to it when when uh, Church passed away or um, when I think Judd's wife passed away first. That's what it was. And that, that kind of opened up the door into what death was. Um, so I, I completely understand. It is very fresh on my mind, and it coincides with the first thing we're going to talk about, which is the second Pet Cemetery trailer. Now, for those of you who tuned in last time, you'll know that I had discussed the, the, the first trailer for Pet Cemetery, and I really wasn't into it. Um, I didn't really like it that much. And uh, so I guess with the, the second trailer... You know what I, like I had said the last time, what I wanted from it was a, a very hard-hitting, gut-wrenching, emotionally turbulent, um, soul-sucking experience. A movie that I will respect, but not necessarily like. Um, something that will drain me and forever haunt me, right? But th- that's kind of a big request, right? I mean, because the concept is, you know, that of, of nothing short of ultimate death, and death's conquering of hope and life and family and potential and promise and fulfillment, um, the ultimate decay of the human spirit, um, and the uh, you know the pointlessness of life. Um, you know, I, I felt that a movie experience should simulate the the potency of that. And based on the first trailer, I wasn't getting those vibes, and I wanted it to feel akin to what the movie Hereditary um, managed to do. Um, but to judge something for what it is not, based on what it is, is not a fair way to judge um, a product. So I have been guilty of that, and I need to take a step back and really just see it for for what it is and just let this trailer and let this experience and let the movie when it comes out in April wash over me and you know then judge it for what it is and if it fails to live up the promise of the content um, and the themes then I you know I will take it to task but I will go in uh, with an open mind um, from this point forward so one of the things in the second trailer that I a lot of people have been talking about are the changes that are now apparent in this adaptation um, and the changes that are made um, from the original movie and you know from the book now spoiler alert for this movie spoiler alert for the original pet cemetery and spoiler alert for uh, Pet Cemetery, the novel by Stephen King. So in the book and the original movie, um, the the great um, terrible moment that occurs is the death of the toddler Gage. Um, it is among the most uh, painful scenes to experience in written form or in visual form. And the director of 
I can't remember her name, the director of the original Pet Cemetery, for the all of the faults that movie has, I do believe that the death of Gage Creed and the way that it's handled is uh, truly a memorable and miraculous uh, piece of, of cinema. Um, with Lewis just chasing after him, Gage looking so small against that oncoming truck, um, and him collapsing onto his knees and just screaming as pol- Polaroid's flash of Gage's life. Um, it, it's really powerful. It is, it's a very, very powerful moment. And the, the way in which we're so quickly taken to the funeral and the raw helplessness of Lewis as his father-in-law is berating him and Lewis just breaks down and starts crying like immediately like it they, they were able to capture a a very raw and truthful component to this horrible process um uh and you know a lot of that has to do with the fact that the death occurs of a toddler now that spoiler alert for the upcoming movie has been changed and it's not gage anymore that dies it's ellie um, and that's fine. Some people are up in arms, but for me, it seems to give a little more for Ellie, who, you know, in the book and the original movie, uh, Ellie becomes sidelined uh, and kind of has a forced special child scenario placed upon her. You know, and Gage being a toddler um, in, the, in this movie, like, he won't be expected to do much, uh, which is fine. You know, he can simply function as a vehicle to increase tension. Um, with this switch taking place, the ultimate fate of Gage is now left in the air. I mean, will the Creeds ship him off to the grandparents? Will he be there when Ellie comes home for her revenge? You know, if so, then the suspense only goes through the roof if Lewis not only has to deal with his undead daughter, but also worry about the safety of his toddler in the process. Um, so I know that there's a division out there about this change, but like I said, I'm fine with it. You know, being the, the father of a daughter, this is going to pack a punch for me when I watch it. Um, but I don't blame the directors for, for wanting to make the switch in the first place. Uh, you know, I mean, you know how I feel about adaptations. If you've been listening for a long time, I, I don't, I, I don't need a direct one-to-one ratio of storyline beats. And if a movie does happen to follow that, I tend to not like that movie. So this this adds a wrench into the way the story's going to play out. And for that, I give them a lot of credit. I never, never would have thought about making that switch to make Ellie be the one that uh, is taken out by the truck. Um, and the directors have been very blunt about the fact that having an undead toddler... Um, you know, I mean, while horrifying a concept and in our imagination is just pretty goofy on screen. So I applaud them for that. This is going to create a, a sense of the unknown as we all watch it. Um, other changes that, that we've seen, it looks like there's a strong relationship here between Judd and Ellie, and uh, um, which is a, a new element to this story. And again, I'm not against it. I'm totally for Judd functioning as a, a combo of a kind slash creepy grandfather type of character. This juxtaposition of a young child and an elderly person always makes for rich storytelling possibilities. It gives the child an opportunity to become a little wiser and the adult a chance to regain a little wonder. Impishness and rebellion spring from these combinations. So again, it adds a new flavor to the story that I'm, I'm going to welcome here. I think that it's a really, really good choice. 
Also, from this trailer, it appears as though the mythology around the Pet Cemetery and the Micmac Burial Ground, if they're going to call it the Micmac Burial Ground, but the burial ground of the indigenous tribes of the area, um, the mythology is expanded and it seems to be put dead center. Um, so the spiral formation that we remember from the original movie um, of the the, uh, the Micmac Burial Ground, it's, it's seated here earlier with spirals on trees, which is, um, you know, vocalized by Judd as a Native American warning sign. Um, so, I mean, you know, just take that for what it's worth. It just seems as though, you know, the original film, you know, focused on the concept of the, the pet cemetery itself and, you know, explain that, you know, there's this burial ground deep in the woods, Native Americans, you know, the... They come back wrong, sometimes that is better, blah, blah, right? Um, but here, it really looks like they are are playing with that a little bit more and putting the uh, a refocus on, um, on the past and the woods and the Wendigo. So for those of you who had only seen the original movie, you might not understand what I'm talking about when I'm referencing the Wendigo, but in the book, the Wendigo... Um, is a uh, creature from, um, you know, folklore and uh, Native American stories, a creature that, a spirit, an evil spirit that lives in the woods. Um, and here we actually get an image uh, in the movie through a drawing in the old book. In, in the, so we actually see it. Um, in the novel, King had kept the Wendigo as a sort of vague big bad, um, a manifestation of, of the larger concept of death, um, which really was personified as Oz the Great and Terrible. Um, it was no joke. That's for those of you who hadn't listened to the review or read the, the, the book. That's, that's how it was. That's, that was death. That was how Lewis grappled with death. Oz the Great and Terrible. Um, in the novel, there's, we don't get a Hollywood moment, um, that you might think like Lewis, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Wendigo or the house being stalked by the Wendigo. I mean, what we get are Lovecraftian moments um, of, of glimpses of things and the Wendigo in the woods, but, you know, the unknown quality of this creature, which, remember, this is a stand-in for death itself, the, the unknown quality is what makes it work. So I'm intrigued by the inclusion of the Wendigo into this new version, but... Gotta say, I'm also a little bit worried that if it's played up um, in doing so, uh, the directors run the risk of possibly personifying death maybe a little too much, which will take away the mystique and the danger of what the Wendigo uh, represents in the book itself. Um, another new aspect that um, we can uh, speculate on based from the trailer is that it appears as though Church lures Ellie into the road. Now, also, it seems as though Ellie had known that Church was dead and is surprised when she sees Church in the road and then runs after him. This is a new wrinkle, and it's one that I like. Um, it imbues Church with malice and menace, um, functioning as an instrument of a larger force at work conspiring against the creeds. This is a decision I am totally for. And by the way, Undead Church looks amazing. This cat, you know, should win some sort of award for pissed off looking cat. 
pissed off looking undead cat. He looks great. Like more church. I am for it. He's selling it and I'm loving it. Um, and then let's see, we also have a really big story. So these have all been conceptual changes up until now. This is a pretty big storytelling change, what I'm going to read next. And that's that Rachel is home. Um, in the book and the original movie, when Gage returns from the dead, he returns during the time when Lewis had sent Rachel and Ellie away to her parents. This allows him to be able to dig up Gage and then bury him again. And then for Gage to arise and start terrorizing the living. So this changes the ending greatly. And again, it throws so much of an unknown quality to this story. With Rachel home, it adds a new wrinkle to the horror. Here, for the first time, the family is reunited. In the original book and the movie, the family had been physically separated. But here, as a visual image and as a metaphor, there's an awful reunion of the whole family that I'm interested in seeing play out. I think the horror of a dead child walking around is hell for a parent, but it would be worse for a mother um, rather than, you know, the father um, as portrayed by, by Lewis. So to have Rachel there, the thought of her having to see her child return as an undead creature is brutally unnerving and heartbreaking. I'm interested in seeing how this plays out, but this might have been a choice that pays off in terms of wringing out as much tragedy as possible. And final thoughts really... This movie looks good. It's a good-looking film with a great cast. Now, I am in full support of the changes that are being made from Judd's lack of over-the-top accent to the Ellie switch, the inclusion of the Wendigo, Rachel's inclusion at being at the end of the story. The only change that I am not into are those fucking mask-wearing children. Um, This seems to be an addition to spookify the story for the sake of being spooky, an extra layer of frosting that this cake doesn't need. I'd bet that this inclusion of the the ritual of children wearing masks, um, wearing masks, simply allows the undead Ellie uh, a reason to wear a creepy mask. And I'm not sold on the masks any more than I'm sold on the creepy kids or their stupid Michael Myers head tilts that I'm seeing in the trailer. Honestly, as a genre, can we just retire the head tilt, the quiet murderer head tilt? I mean, it's just been done to death. It was fine when Michael did it the first time around when he killed Bob. And stabbed him up against the wall, then took a step back and, you know, did the head nod, admired his work. That was fine. Like, ooh, the first time you see it, like, that's great. It's a great moment in cinema. But since then, it has just been a staple in horror movies, in wrestling. I mean, this was one of Kane's things that he did all the time back in the 90s and the early 2000s. So, I mean, enough. Like, when when you have, like, a, a Glenn Jacobs, mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee... Um, having done the head tilt, I think that it's time for us to uh, put it to rest in consecrated ground so it doesn't come back um, different or worse. Oh, and and one more thing that I forgot. Zelda. Zelda is definitely in this movie. And, uh, you know, I mean, she occupies a terrifying moment from the original movie. And I I just hope that they don't overdo it. Um, Zelda in the original is great. Um, because she's limited and it's creepy and it's done very well through child Rachel's eyes. Um, I, I just don't need too much Zelda. You know, I, I feel like the ending of, of this new movie um, will be the Creeds being overwhelmed by a supernatural barrage led by their undead daughter, um, with Rachel being haunted by the ghost of Zelda, 
you know, the home invaded by creepy mask-wearing children and a murderous church. That's the kind of vibe that I'm getting here. Um, and one last thing that I like, uh, the font in the poster and the trailer is the font from the paperback. Um, you can probably thank Stranger Things for that, but I'm not complaining because it's a great font and it looks good, blood red on the screen like that. Um, so this movie's going to be in, in theaters soon. I mean, as I record this, it's uh, late April. I'm sorry, it's late February. And so all I have to do is just get through March. Um, and then April 5th will be here. So we are entering a really awesome time of movies that I'm really looking forward to. I mean, we're going to be getting um, Captain Marvel very, very soon. Um, and hopefully that will wash the taste out of of Aquaman out of my mouth. I made it through one hour of Aquaman and then I literally left the theater um, because the thought of enduring 90 more minutes of that nonsense was too much to bear. Um, and I don't leave theaters and I you know, have kind of an open mind and whatever. Like I expected it to be dumb and fun. Um, it was visually uh, something. It just kind of kept bombarding you uh, I mean, sorry, the, the, the movie is literally hurting my brain right now. I mean, the sharks roared. This movie had roaring sharks and water-powered laser guns. Um, I guess if I was like eight, this movie would rock. Um, but it just, it just wasn't doing it for me. Anyway, I need to watch The Taste of Aquaman out of my mouth. Captain Marvel's coming. I'm excited about Captain Marvel. And then we got Infinity War. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Avengers Endgame um, in April. And between uh, Captain Marvel and Avengers, we have Pet Cemetery. So I'm very, very excited for that. And then don't forget, in May, um, my man comes back to the big screen, uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I cannot wait. That movie looks great. Okay, and the next thing that uh, we need to talk about is the Institute. Now, for those of you who haven't heard, uh, Stephen King has um, a new book coming out in the fall called The Institute. Let me read you the description of this. This is the synopsis. In the middle of the night, in a house on a quiet street in suburban Minneapolis, intruders silently murder Luke Ellis' parents and load him into a black SUV. The operation takes less than two minutes. Luke will wake up at the Institute in a room that looks just like his own, except that there's no window. And outside his door are other doors, behind which are other kids with special talents, telekinesis, and telepathy, who got to this place the same way that Luke did. Kalisha, Nick, George Iris, and 10-year-old Avery Dixon. They are all in front half. Others, Luke learns, graduated to back half. Like the Roach Motel, Kalisha says, you check in, but you don't check out. In this most sinister of institutions, the director, Mrs. Sigsby, and her staff are ruthlessly dedicated to extracting from these children the force of their extra-normal gifts. There are no scruples here. If you go along, you get tokens for the vending machines. If you don't, punishment is brutal. As each new victim disappears to the back half, Luke becomes more and more desperate to get out and get help. But no one has ever escaped from the Institute. As psychically terrifying as Firestarter, and with the spectacular kid power of It, The Institute is Stephen King's gut-wrenchingly dramatic story of good versus evil in a world where the good guys don't always win. Okay, so here's some mindless speculation. You want some mindless speculation? Here you go. Now, of all of his novels, Firestarter is the one that has been open to sequel possibilities. And spoiler alert for The Dark Tower, um, but I had always hoped that Charlie would show up as a breaker or an escape breaker, 
or some sort of reference to her. That would have made for a great inclusion into King's larger mythos. And it's interesting here that the synopsis includes the phrase, outside his door are other doors, which clearly invokes Dark Tower imagery. And the Dark Tower series included organizations not unlike the Institute to keep breakers under lock and key. Everything's eventual specifically. So am I expecting a full-on sequel to Firestarter in which the shop has evolved into the Institute that happens to be a feeder for Algil Ciento? No, no, not really. I mean, but we can all dream, right? It's just the king nerd in me geeking out at this possibility. But in a post-Dark Tower world in which Holly Dibney now pops up in other books, in which we've received a sequel to The Shining, we shouldn't rule out Stephen King diving back into the level of interconnectedness that made the road to the conclusion of The Dark Tower so much fun. At the very least, if you've grown tired of the crime thrillers that he's been churning out since Mr. Mercedes, then this looks like a high-concept return to form. There's been some criticism that this sounds derivative of beat-to-death genre, but who, who cares? I mean, that's not how I see it, and even if I did, we'd know that King writes mystical children stories very well, and he knows how to wring out tension when those children are placed in the crosshairs of a supernatural or sci-fi threat. So, no matter what, it's going to be an enjoying read. And if there's even a chance that's a sequel to Firestarter, or if it explores concepts from the Dark Tower series, it's not just going to be an enjoyable read, it's going to be a must-read. So that comes out sometime in the fall. I can't wait for the Institute. I'm sure that we'll have more information about that as the months go on. Um, and then there's a little bit of news on Doctor Sleep, the, the movie. Uh, Mike Flanagan is wrapped. Um, and this movie uh, is now coming out on November 8th. 2019. Um, that's going to be here before we know it. And that means that we should be getting a trailer sometime soon, sometime in the spring, I would imagine, and another trailer um, sometime in, in late summer. So um, this is a movie that, that happened, seemed to happen <coughs> pretty quick. Um, and after The Haunting of Hill House, I can't wait for this. I'm very, very excited. Mike Flanagan is a director with full control of the product, it seems, that his his visualization of what he wants a story to be and the actualization of that vision seems to match up. Um, and for him, I think it was episode six of Haunting of Hill House, for him to be able to, to do that and be able to lead everyone through that is a testament to his leadership abilities, working with a crew um, and working behind the camera. So to take on the daunting task of sequelizing not just the um, one of the most terrifying movies of all time, but just one of the greatest movies of all time, that's he understands that it's a very, very daunting task. Um, is he going to deliver a Kubrickian level um, of cinema that's going to resound through the generations like the original Shining did? No, that's not... That's not what any one of us should expect. But a, um, I, I really want it to be similar in in tone to what Doctor Sleep. Maybe, maybe. She's just going after some plastic bags. Um. Yeah, I, I want it to feel the same tone. Um, and story as the the book. I don't want it to have to change what makes the book special to pacify um, viewers of, of the movie. And I just, I in Mike Flanagan, 
I trust. So I'm really, really looking forward to see what happens with that. And um, this is big news as well. It's certainly not the first time I have discussed this adaptation, but it has taken on a, a new permutation, which is The Stand. Um, I remember early on uh, in the Stephen King cast, um, there's that cough, there's that cough that just won't go away, um, in the Stephen King cast when it was announced that Matthew McConaughey was attached to the, uh, the live-action Stand movie. Uh, that didn't turn out so well, but um, The Stand has moved on from Ben Affleck directing it to Josh Boone directing it on screen, um, and now it has landed on CBS All Access, which I hear good things about. Um, and so here is from Deadline. Um, I'll just read you the article. CBS All Access has given a 10-episode order to The Stand, a new adaptation of Stephen King's best-selling novel as a limited event. The project hails from Josh Boone and SEAL Team creator, executive producer Ben Cavill and CBS Television Studios. Boone and Cavill pen the adaptation and Boone will direct. The Stand is King's apocalyptic vision of a world decimated by plague and embroiled in an elemental struggle between good and evil. The fate of mankind rests on the frail shoulders of 108-year-old Mother Abigail and a handful of survivors. Their worst nightmares are embodied in a man with a lethal smile and unspeakable powers, Randall Flagg, the Dark Man. I'm excited and so very pleased that The Stand is going to have a new life on this exciting new platform, said King. The people involved are men and women who know exactly what they're doing. The scripts are dynamite. The results, uh, result bids to something, to be something memorable and thrilling. I believe it will take viewers away to a world they hope will never happen. Boone and Cavill, executive produced with Roy Lee, Jimmy Miller, and Richard P. Rubenstein, blah, blah, blah. Um, I read The Stand under my bed when I was 12, and my Baptist parents burned it in our fireplace upon discovery, said Boone. Incensed, I stole my dad's FedEx account number and mailed King a letter professing my love for his work. Several weeks later, I came home to find a box, had arrived from Maine, and inside were several books, each inscribed with a beautiful note from God himself, who encouraged me in my writing and thanked me for being a fan. My parents, generally moved by King's kindness and generosity, lifted the ban on his books that very day. I wrote King a cameo as himself in my first film, and I've been working to bring the stands to the screen for five years. I found incredible partners in CBS All Access and Ben Cavill. Um, the project has been in development at CBS All Access for a while. Um, okay, then it kind of just goes on. That that's that's the meat of that story. So, I mean, we we don't know anything else about it, but um, let the fan casting begin. So here's what I need everyone to do: um, shoot me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and start fan casting this thing. Who do you want to see as the characters? Um, clearly, McConaughey had been attached once. He played a version of Randall Flag. Um, in the Dark Tower. It's best that we not talk about it that much. <coughs> Sorry, there's that cough. I got some Captain Trips. Um, yeah, and it sucks that we never got to see him play Randall Flagg as Randall Flagg. He would have been perfect. Um, a name that's you know coming up a lot is uh, Walton Goggins. He would be great as uh, anybody, really. I mean, he would be able to play Stu very well. He would be able to play Lloyd very, very well. Um, he would be able to play uh, Trash very well, and he'd be able to play Flag very, very well. And based on a lot of the fan casting that does exist out there, and his name's been bandied about a lot, it's clear that um, whoever is casting this movie at least needs to cast him as something, because um, that would be fun. So yeah, wh who you got? Who else would you like to see in this movie play You know what role? Um, I'm very, very excited to see 
you know, who they're able to get. Are they going to get unknowns? Are they going to get big names? Um, you know, they're, they're definitely going to want to cash in on this and turn this into a big, I mean, I would think <laughs> if they don't want it to be a series of, of big budget movies, then to sort of capture the zeitgeist that Game of Thrones does. I'm sure that that's what they're going to want to go for. So we'll see. We'll see. And stay tuned here um, when when more news comes out. But in the meantime, write to Stephen King cast at yahoo.com and give me all your thoughts on who you want to see cast in these iconic Stephen King roles. And up next, uh, let's talk about The Outsider. Um, I provided my review of The Outsider um, back in the spring when it was released, um, the more I think about it, the more I like it. Um, I like what Stephen King did with it. He basically made two stories and smushed them together. I really like the way that uh, that was uh, thought of um, and executed. And this is uh, becoming a series. <clears throat> and this is from Hollywood Reporter. I'm going to read this. HBO's series adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Outsider, has rounded out its cast adding Tony and Grammy winner um, Tony and Grammy winner uh, Cynthia Ervio and several other actors to the drama. The crime drama supernatural thriller from Media Rights Capital previously cast Ben Mendelsohn in a lead role, which is awesome. The series, based on King's 2018 novel, follows a seemingly straightforward investigation into the murder of a young boy. As it progresses, the seasoned cop and unorthodox investigator, investigator come to question everything they believe is real when a supernatural force edges its way into the case. Mendelssohn is playing Ralph Anderson, the detective investigating the case. Erivo will play investigator Holly Dibney, um, a character from King's Mr. Mercedes novels, who incidentally is played by Justine Loop in the direct TV series of the same name, who joins Ralph on what seems like an open and shut case. Also joining the cast as series regulars are Bill Camp um, as lawyer Howie Gold, Mayor Winningham as Jeannie Anderson, Patty Constantine as Claude Bolton, a witness in the case. Julianne Nicholson as Mercy Maitland, the wife of the accused. Ewell Vasquez as a state police detective. Uh, Eunice Sablo, Jeremy Bob as Alec Pelly, and Mark Menchaca as Jack Hoskins, a rival of Ralph's. Hetienne Park and Michael Esper will recur as, retrospectively, characters named Tamika Collins and Bill Samuels. Jason Bateman, via his aggregate films, is executive producing and will direct the first two episodes. Writer Pritchard is also executive producing along with Marty Bowen and Jack Bender of Temple Hill Entertainment and aggregates Michael Costigan. Mendelssohn is producer. Um, Okay, so a couple things about all of this. First of all, I think The Outsider will make for a really good um, series, a limited series, a limited series. Uh, I think that, that that's a good way to go about it. There's going to be a lot of twists and turns to play out here. Um, and the fact that HBO is jumping all over this. I mean, HBO, in the wake of Game of Thrones, they need, they're going to need new content. And they do well with their limited series. So I am really looking forward to this. And it's going to have... The shine that I think, no pun intended, it's gonna it's gonna have the shine um, that comes with an HBO miniseries, and I um, and I think that that's fitting and appropriate here for for Stephen King and The Outsider. 
Um, if you have listened to my reviews of Mr. Mercedes and just listened to the podcast in general, knowing my love of the show Lost, you know how I feel about Jack Bender and the fact that he is attached and will be directing um, some of these is such uh, a good get. Um, and Jack Bender has a good track record with HBO as well as, um, you know, he directed The Door. I believe that that's what the episode is called. Um, you know, which is... I mean, it's a heartbreaking episode, but it's also just a, a perfect um, landing. It sticks the landing of what the episode wants it to be. Um, so that that is great in terms of the the, the creative um, figures behind the scenes um, and the, the the network that's on. All of that is good. Um, ben Mendelsohn. Uh, I have been a huge fan of Ben Mendelsohn since. Um, why can't I remember the name of it? The the, the one with the. Um, Bloodline, since Bloodline. If, if you haven't seen Bloodline on Netflix, please do. There's three seasons. Seasons two and three or you know, whatever, but season one is phenomenal. It's a phenomenal piece of television. It's kind of slow going at first. You have to get into it um, and get to know the characters. It's a slow burn, and it revolves all around the Ben Mendelsohn character. It's fantastic, and Ben Mendelsohn just absolutely makes it work. Um, so I can't wait to see him in this role because he's going to be perfect in it because he plays... Uh, as Ralph, he plays a character that you're rooting against and then wind up rooting for. He makes, he, he's sympathetic, but frustrating at the same time. Um, there's a little bit of, just a little bit of slime that comes in because he thinks that he's doing something right. Um, but like he's at the bottom, at the core of his heart, he's a good man. Like, and Ben Mendelsohn is going to be able to do that. I'm really looking forward to it. It's really cool that we have two Holly Dibneys out there um, uh, in in our Stephen King adaptation world, hold, hold on. I'm sure that you can hear one of my dogs barking in the other room. That is the uh, the non-sick dog. Um, the one that was barking is, is the princess of the two of them uh, who just really wants attention. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, Ben Mendelsohn is great. I love the fact that we have a couple Holly Dibneys existing out there. And so now we get to, you know... You know, see who plays the better Holly. I'm very, very excited. Um, and all in all, this is something that I, I, I think will be uh, just great. So Jason Bateman, who is executive producing here and is a creative figure, um, it had been rumored when he first joined on that he would also be starring in the show, um, which makes sense if you understand uh, and have read The Outsider um, I believe that he will be um, playing. I believe that if he's going to play anyone, um, he is going to play. Oh man, um, Terry is that his Terry Maitland? I, I I believe is his name. The 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 accused of the the murder, um, which Jason Bateman is going to. It's a it's a perfect role for Jason Bateman. Not because Jason Bateman looks like a murderer, but Jason Bateman looks like a suburban like all star dad. You know, like he's going to be able to. You know, an English teacher, little league coach, up and up good guy um, who is just, you know, dumbfounded at this accusation. Um, that's that's something that's going to be, um, if that's the case, uh, then that's that's really, really good casting. He should cast himself um, in that role. He would be great. <clears throat> okay, so not only do we have The Outsider uh, coming out soon, but we also have, and I'm very excited about this one, we have Creepshow coming back, um, not as a movie series, uh, but as an anthology show. 
which really is what Creepshow should be. Um, and so I'm going to read from Slash Film here. Shutters, and that's another thing, the fact that's on Shutter. If you aren't if you don't subscribe to Shutter, uh, you should get Shutter. And I need to take my own advice. I don't have it. But if you're listening to the Stephen King cast, then you are a fan of horror. And this is this is uh, the the hub of horror now. And we're only going to get um, more instances of stuff like Shutter. I mean, I think that soon um, all of the big events in horror are going to be kind of revolving around Shutter. But anyway. Shudder's creep show TV series from The Walking Dead's Grick Nicotero has crawled from its moldy crypts to begin production. As the series begins, the full list of writers' work being used for the show has been announced, and what an impressive list it is. Um, in addition to creep show mainstay Stephen King, the new, st- the new stories come from Joe Hill, Bird Box author Josh Mallerman, Cold in July writer Joel Lansdale, and more. See the full list of creep show stories below. Um, and then the, the author, uh, Chris Evangelista, writes, One of the most anticipated new shows of 2019 is Creepshow, a Shutter series based on the classic George Romero, Stephen King horror anthology film. We previously reported that the new show, which is being spearheaded by makeup artist and filmmaker Greg Nicotero, would feature an adaptation of Stephen King's Survivor Type, a disgusting story in which a shipwrecked man starts eating his own body parts to survive. Now, as the show kicks off production, we have a full look of the list of the stories being used. Okay, you ready for this? By the Silvery Waters of Lake Champlain by Joe Hill. Okay, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that one more. You can download that uh, short story right now if you go onto Amazon and get it for your Kindle, or you can wait, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. House of the Head by Josh Mallerman. I'm unfamiliar with that short story. I am familiar with Josh Mallerman. I guess most of us are at this point because we've all watched Bird Box. I had wanted to read Bird Box first, but I wound up watching the, the movie... Um, which kind of cooled my enthusiasm to read the book. Um, I do want to read it just now to, to compare. Um, I, I think that I would like the book better. But um, from everything that I've ever heard about the book Bird Box, it's really well written, so I'm looking forward to seeing um, what else he has. The Companion by Joel Lansdale. Joel Lansdale speaks for himself. The Man in the Suitcase, which is an interesting uh, title, by Christopher uh, Buhlman. All Hallows Eve by Bruce Jones, Night of the Paw by John Esposito, and Bad Wolf Down by Rob Schrab. Okay, so here are the synopsis um, to some of these stories. So by the Silvery Waters of Lake Champlain um, by Joe Hill. Little Gail London and her friend Joe Quarrel are out on a cold and lonely morning at the end of summer when they make the find of the century, a dead plesiosaur the size of a two-ton truck washed up on the sand. With the fog swirling about them, they make their plans, fight to defend their discovery, and face for the first time the enormity of mortality itself, all unaware what else might be out there in the silvery water of Lake Champlain. Um, so for those of you who live in New England, you, you know that um, Lake Champlain in Vermont um, has uh, been reputed to have its own lake monster um, champ. And uh, this is a riff on that. It's also a riff on the, the Ray Bradbury story, um, The Lonesome Foghorn. I can't remember the name of it. But it, reading it, you, you, you'll, you'll definitely, um, it invokes that, the, the, the lonesome nature of, of that story. Um, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, House of the Head, House of the Head by um, Josh Mallerman of Bird Box fame. Young Evie May witnesses a murder slash haunting in the elaborate dollhouse in her bedroom. She worries greatly for the figurines within. 
And while the haunting never spills out into her house, never touches her actual family, the macabre drama her toys are involved in will scar her for life. That sounds great. Now we have The Companion uh, by Joe Lansdale. 13-year-old Harold decides to explore the long-abandoned farm of the late Raymond Brenner and finds that he's got a new companion, a, uh, a murderous, indestructible scarecrow. These are going to be great. Um, then we have uh, The Man in the Suitcase. <clears throat> Uh, by Christopher Buhlman. 19-year-old Justin brings home the wrong suitcase from the airport, and inside the suitcase is a man with a terrible problem. Uh, and then we have Bad Wolf Down uh, by Rob Schrab. Um, this is a group of World War II American soldiers pinned down by a Nazi unit resort to unholy and supernatural means to avoid capture, torture, and death. Um, so let's see. So we have... Directors for the, the, the show um, will be David Bruckner, Roxanne Benjamin, Rob Schrab, and John Harrison, um, who was a first assistant director on the original Creep Show. Uh, this is great, guys. I, I am excited at the possibility of this. This could go on forever. Um, I, I am sorely missing, and we are sorely lacking in um, a week-by-week -week anthology format of horror. I mean, the, the heyday, of course, was HBO, going back to HBO, Tales from the Crypt, um, a campy and fun um, weekly dive into dark imagination and fun imagination. And so I'm, I'm excited that not only is this <clears throat> uh, revitalizing the Creepshow brand, um, but it's also uh, expanding beyond Stephen King. And of course, there are so many Stephen King stories to, um, to include here. Uh, but there are so many Joe Hill stories to include, and um, I'll get to Joe Hill in a little bit. I'm going to talk about him after we're done with the eight Stephen King um, uh, adaptations. Uh, but there's just so much. There's so much, and I like the fact that they're um, exploring the, the works of, of many artists out there. Um, also about Creepshow, I just posted on Instagram Greg Nicotero's post from his Instagram account of The Creep. So not only is Creepshow coming back, but The Creep is coming back as well. And um, if you remember, Creepshow, what makes it famous and what makes it stand out is that it really employs and embraces the comic book style format um, of its um, predecessors and what it was inspired by those EC Comics tales, um, most famously um, made popular by the the Crypt Keeper, um, and the Creep was kind of like a riff on on the Crypt Keeper, uh, and so. He posted a picture of the creep. The creep is coming back as well. And he's like lurking outside a window like a creep. Uh, and it's it's practical effects, as you would expect from Greg Nicotero. And and so it just looks, it, it that made me smile so much um, that not only are we getting the, the brand creep show, but the brand is on point. And it looks like, you know, we're going to get, you know, some sort of hosting um, even though he doesn't read it out loud, you know, he, the, the, the creep is the character in the comics that other people are reading and he kind of lurks on the, 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 the edges of imagination peering in from the, from the outside. <clears throat> so I'm very excited about this and I hope, I really hope that it's the, the beginning and the end of every episode is bookended with the creep. I think that that would be great. Um, okay. And so that. So I talked a little bit about Joe Hill. So let's uh, talk about Nosferatu. Um, so as you know, Nosferatu is uh, coming 
to television, I think on AMC, um, hmm, I think it's this summer, actually, uh, which I'm very, 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 very excited about. There's a lot of, yeah, it's it's sometime this year, um, but there's definitely a lot to be able to mine from, from Nosferatu, and they want to do multiple seasons, which means that they're definitely going to be taking their time throughout the, the, the life of, of Vic. So for those of you who haven't read Nosferatu, you can check out my review. It was a bonus episode um, in the first year of the, the Stephen King cast. So head back, look at uh, December of like 2014 or 2015, and, and you'll find it. It's a great book. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's very reminiscent of, of high concept Stephen King, and it's very rooted in Joe Hill's comic book storytelling sensibilities as well. Um, it's... This is this is a little snippet, a little synopsis from Slash Film, um, again by Chris Evangelista. The story focuses on a young woman dealing with an immortal vampire-like child killer who takes his victims to Christmasland, a creepy imaginary world where it's Christmas every day. So we've there's a there's a teaser for Nosferatu. You can check it out. It it kind of is done in the style of of like a silent film. It's very grainy. Um, it's kind of blurry, unfocused, just images that meant to, to to creep you out. And it's it's very reminiscent of, well, Nosferatu, the original silent vampire movie. Um, but there's about a whole slew of <clears throat> of um, images as well. We have um, pictures of Zachary Quinto as Charlie Manx, um, both looking youthful and looking elderly um, and decrepit. Um, next to the Wraith, we've see, we see the Wraith, his car that he drives around in, um, which, is, uh, which is great. We have Vic McQueen in various states of duress, um, duress, um, you know, on her bike, um, looking uh, worse for wear in some other pictures, going through the, the, the bridge, okay, um, on her bike, about to ride through the bridge. And in the book, I do recall, if I remember correctly, she rides an actual bike. Later in life, she you know starts getting into motorcycles. Here, it looks as though the bike she's riding is an actual, not a motorcycle, but like a moped sort of thing. It's like a dirt bike. Um, so, I mean, take that, take that for, for what it's worth. Um, we have uh, Maggie Lee at, uh, at the computer. We have Bing Partridge. Uh, you know, we can see him. He's, uh, he, I, I, don't, I don't remember what I looked, what, it, what Bing looked like to me, but here he looks, he's big, he's burly, looks kind of dumb, um, easily swayed, we can see. Um, we have uh, Vic's parents, very excited about uh, Vic's uh, father, Chris, um, who I think is a phenomenal actor, um, played by Eben Boss uh, Backrack, um, who you might have seen either in Girls or um, Punisher, season one. And I think that he definitely, I know that uh, John Bernthal uh, got a lot of credit for the Punisher, but I think that um, Micro was the one that stole the show um, in terms of just acting ability and um, empathy. I mean, it's it's he brought a lot of tragedy to that role. So I'm excited about Nosferatu. Spoilers for the book with what I'm going to say next. Um, I, from what I would guess, 
uh, Nosferatu, the the series, the the first season at the very least, probably will be like the first half of the book when Vic is a girl, um, a kid, um, and will probably conclude with her. Um, this is my bet. It concludes with her in the past, escaping Christmas Tree Land, um, or, or escaping um, Charlie Manx's house, which, if done correctly on television, could make for a, a, a nail-biting sequence. That it's an incredible sequence from the book. Um, you know, escaping with the 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 the, the race crashing into the gas station, a couple murders taking place, and then. Um, Charlie meeting, um, or uh, Vic meeting. I, I can't remember the the name of the the ultimate uh, the the guy that she meets and marries. Um, so I believe that in the past the storyline will end there, and in the present it will probably end with adult like present day Charlie Manks waking up um, in the hospital. That's what I would bet, and then season two would pick up um, in the present and walking us through Vic's um, broken adulthood. Um, as she starts to get bad feelings about uh, Charlie Manx um, and their um, unavoidable reunion. So I'm excited about this. And of course, when there is uh, more information, I will uh, bring it your way. And also uh, on the Joe Hill news front from Firewire, um, Larry Fire of Firewire writes, Joe Hill will release a new short story collection in 2019. And that is great. Uh, Joe Hill re- will release a new short story collection entitled Full Throttle in the fall of 2019. In this masterful collection of short fiction, Joe Hill dissects timeless human struggles and 13 relentless tales of supernatural suspense, including In the Tall Grass, one of two stories co-written with Stephen King, basis for the terrifying feature film from Netflix. So that's another thing. We get um, In the Tall Grass to look forward to from Joe Hill. You don't have to wait. Uh, to read in the tall grass, like Full Throttle, which is the the title of this particular uh, collection, and by the silverly waters of Lake Champlain, you can download those and thumbprint um, as well, which I'm sure will be included there um, in this collection. So there's a lot of Joe Hill that you'll be able to download and not wait for the collection, or you can go ahead and just wait for it. So uh, Larry Fire continues, a little door that opens to a world of fairy tale wonders becomes the blood-drenched stomping ground for a gang of hunters in Fawn. A grief-stricken librarian climbs behind the wheel of an antique bookmobile to deliver fresh reads to the dead in late returns. By the silver waters of Lake Champlain, two young friends stumble on the corpse of a plesiosaur on the water's edge, a discovery that forces them to confront the inescapable truths of their own mortality and other horrors that lurk in the water's shivery depths. And tension shimmers in the sweltering heat of the Nevada desert as a faceless trucker finds himself caught in the sinister dance with a tribe of motorcycle outlaws in Throttle, co-written with Stephen King. Featuring two previously unpublished stories and a brace of shocking chillers, Full Throttle is a darkly imagined odyssey through the complexities of the human psyche. Hypnotic and disquieting, it mines our tormented secrets hidden vulnerabilities, and basis fears and demonstrates the exceptional talent at his very best. Now, for those of you who have been listening to me for a while, you know that I believe that Joe Hill's strength lies in his ability to tell a short story. Um, Listen to my review of 20th Century Ghosts. Read 20th Century Ghosts and listen to my reviews. I mean, those short stories are... Everyone is a masterpiece. Um, And he is the master 
at the final sentence. I mean, he wraps, he packs a punch in his final sentences and wraps up the entire story <coughs> in a wonderful bow. So make sure that you, you check out 20th Century Ghosts if you haven't done that. Um, and don't forget about Strange Weather, which was released last year as well, which, cl- which include four short novels or novellas. Now, one of the stories uh, referenced there, Fawn, um, recently, this, this just happened this past week, and I'm going to read from Deadline. Um, so this says Netflix Sugar 23 win film rights bidding battle for Joe Hill short story Fawn exclusive Netflix won a three studio bidding battle good for you Joe Hill uh, to acquire screen rights to Fawn an upcoming short story by best-selling author Joe Hill Jeremy Slater will write the script and Michael Sugar will produce it through a Sugar 23 banner with Ashley Zalta the story will be published in a new short story collection in the fall um, the story is based on a novel on uh, blah, blah, blah. Hold on, hold on. Okay, so this is what it says. Um, and it sounds crazy. Narnia, Hogwarts, Neverland. All magical places that mortals can travel to and marvel at the strange creatures and wonders not seen in our world. What if a door to a magical land was discovered and instead of pure-hearted adventures, a man saw an opportunity to charge a fortune for an exclusive private game reserve where you can bag a magical creature? Multi-millionaire Tip Follows is a recreational hunter looking for a more interesting challenge. Another wealthy hunter, Stockton, has a secret to share and a journey to offer. All they need to do is pay a quarter of a million dollars to go through a little door in an old house in rural Maine. We see a supernatural adventure film that brings the fresh magical take on the most dangerous game. Um, I mean, that sounds great. Uh, It's a great high-concept story um, that just... It's a spin on, like, like, like it just said, all of the, the magic fairy tales that um, from popular fiction that we have come to know. So that, that's a lot of news in the, in the world of Stephen King and his family. And I'm very, it's like I've said for a couple of years now, this is a great time to be a fan of Stephen King and uh, Stephen King-related authors um, because we just got a lot of good stuff coming our way. So um, there's stuff that I haven't talked, you know, I mean, I mentioned In the Tall Grass, which is, you know, attached to Netflix. That, that's kind of been dormant, the, the news. But if you haven't read that, that is a, ugh, it's a, it is a creepy, unsettling short story that I strongly, strongly recommend. Okay, guys, we're almost at an hour now. Um, and what I want to do, oh, we're actually over an hour. Uh, but what I want to do now, usually I read emails at the beginning. Just for the sake of this episode, I wanted to, to just kind of get into everything right away. And I will read my all the emails um, now. So Dustin writes, first, let me say I thoroughly enjoy your podcast. I remember reading my first King novel, The Gunslinger, in or around 1987. I was 13 and in junior high. I picked up the drawing of the three at my school library and realizing it was a part of a series, went scurrying to find the first of the series. By the time I finished Wizard in Glass, I remember thinking how much of a hack King was with simply integrating Wizard of Oz and lacking any originality. I also felt the ending of It was a hack job. Oh, the doubles of being a child with a chip on one shoulder. Throughout the years, I returned to King and read many of his novels and enjoyed them immensely. As an adult and going back to the Dark Tower series, and yes, it, and realizing this was not a hack at all, but a genius who was able to incorporate the world we live in with the worlds of fantasy that he has created alongside what has come before. 
Anyhow, over the past year, I have embarked on an entire reread of King's work, following each finished novel with the corresponding episode of your wonderful podcast. It's a wonderful ride, and I thank you for adding to the enjoyment. I'm currently in the middle of Bag of Bones, looking forward to each book and, of course, each KingCast episode. One final note. In your Kingisms, one thing I've noticed is almost every book is some form of throwback to childhood rhymes. Hmm. There is always, recently noticed in the regulators, the 911 phone calls, always a rhyme that children said in the playgrounds or some such. Any reason you never mentioned it? It seems so very King. Thanks for your time, Dustin. Dustin, I don't, I don't know. I guess it just slipped my mind. Um, I, so that's a really, really great catch. Great, great Kingism, maybe. And then we have Lisa, who writes, Hello. I just wanted to drop you a line and say thanks so much for making an excellent podcast. Constant listener in Norway here. I'm a new Stephen King devotee. I only started reading his novels last year, despite being very aware of his body of work pretty much my entire life. I'm a horror fan, but I had convinced myself that King was too scary for me. I am currently enjoying the Castle Rock TV series and inspired me to pick up Needful Things. I got the Kindle Audible edition so I can switch between reading and listening. The audio edition is read by King himself. Now, you recently had a listener write in to talk about the differences in the print and audio editions of a King novel, which one escapes me, unfortunately, but I noticed this passage at the beginning of Needful Things and thought I would share. The Kindle edition goes... It's just a small town life, though. Call it Peyton Place or Grover's Corners or Castle Rock. It's just folks eating pie and drinking coffee and talking about each other behind their hands. In the audio version, Grover's Corners is replaced by Twin Peaks. Just a fun little tidbit here, seeing as how you're a Twin Peaks fan, as am I, even though I was 11 when it premiered on TV and Killer Bob pretty much messed me up for life, haha. Keep up the great work. I'm looking forward to your further reviews and thoughts on Castle Rock and all other things King-related. All the best. Lisa in Norway. Um, Lisa, thank you for writing in all the way from Norway, um, which is crazy to me that people in other countries are, are listening to this. But it just shows that, you know, um, it doesn't matter where you're from. We all have things in common. It also reminds me that I uh, really slacked um, when it came to wrapping up my Twin Peaks podcast, uh, Hanging with Agent Cooper. If you are a fan of Twin Peaks, then uh, you're going to want to check out uh, Hanging with Agent Cooper, a Twin Peaks podcast in which I, much like the Stephen King cast, I revisited each of the episodes in Twin Peaks The Return, which aired in the, the, the summer to fall of 2017. And for me was one of the, the greatest... Um, television experiences of my life that I, I needed to just really share out with everybody. So you can check out that podcast uh, on iTunes. Um, I'll probably, um, there, I, I've, I've reviewed all 18 episodes um, and I have uh, a couple wrap-up episodes where I really tackle the big themes. That's going to be one episode and then I need to discuss the, um, the theorizing that has come out in the wake of Twin Peaks The Return. So head on over to iTunes and, and, and download it if you are a fan of, of Twin Peaks. And then we have Nathan who writes, Hello there, fellow constant reader. I am writing to you to express my desire to see you do a tiered ranking of Stephen King's novels. I feel like there are not many people more qualified to do a list like that considering you have already covered the entire bibliography, bibliography on your show. To me, a tiered list is a great way to show the different levels of quality in a ranking order and also shows that those two books that could go either way really do belong on the same order with maybe one slightly in front of another. I think this would be also incredibly useful to listeners on your show who have not read every King book and want a recommendation on what to read next without spoilers. 
I will say you do a good job mentioning when you are about to discuss spoilers on your podcast. However, it limits a listener to only hearing the episodes of King's stories they have seen or read before and not looking for recommendations on what to read next. This wouldn't necessarily be something you have to put a ton of time into. Simply a couple lines of write-ups for each tier and maybe a few explanations into why one book falls above or below another. It certainly would open up your series not to just post-reading discussion, but pre-reading discussion as well. Would love to hear what you have to think, and thanks again for doing what you do. Long days and pleasant nights, Nathan. Nathan, that is a really interesting idea. Um, but I do think that it would take a lot of time. It would, If I were to do it really the right way, I would need to create a set of criteria, an objective set of criteria um, that would guide me through each novel and short story and really um, judge King's uh, craft um, against what I've established as the criteria in terms of character arcs, uh, uh, consistency and control of tone, theme, how well the theme is woven into and out of the conflict. Um, you know, so I would need to establish the, uh, the criteria, keep that consistent throughout um, uh, a, a review uh, rank, um, and then, you know, make sure I go through it with a fine-tooth comb. But I, I find that when you create lists and when there are rankings, Rank, as much as we want to be objective, there are so many outside of the text factors that play a part in ranking systems. Um, I believe a ranking, and I, I hate ever bringing this up, but it is important to talk about. A ranking system pre-Stephen King's death is going to look a lot different than the ranking of his books and his bibliography after he dies. Because upon his death, people are going to reread his books with a different lens, um, and things will stand out more. And as time passes, because he's been able to chronicle, um, you know, a, a pretty large chunk of American and world history that has played out um, through the eyes of his characters, um, how history settles and how the dust of history settles will also um, play a part in, in ranking Stephen King's books. So it's not just about what's best um, because that can be very subjective. You, you, have to, you have to really put in all these different factors that might not necessarily come to mind. Um, you know, and and there's, you also have to think about um, other factors such as uh, impact on culture. Uh, you know, and so in that case, you you have to think about something like The Shining, which its impact on culture extends beyond what he wrote, um, but what his writing inspired another creator to do. And I would say that Stanley Kubrick's contribution um, using Stephen King's story. Uh, is wider than what Stephen King was able to do with that story himself. But yet, even though it's Stanley Kubrick's contribution, that does um, go back to you know the the origin and the genesis of what Stephen King gave. So you know you have to give Stephen King credit there. You know, so it, it's not just about what Stephen King does; it's what others do with Stephen King as well. So the, it would be a lot. It would be phase two of the Stephen King cast. Uh, 
and I'll, it would take it would be a lot and I'm not ready to go there yet um maybe if this if this sucker is going for another 10 years then maybe maybe I will do another dive into the the world of of Stephen King but it's a great idea Nathan thank you then we have Jeremy who writes Hey, I just discovered your podcast. Not sure why it's taken me so long. I, too, obsess over King's works, especially anything that ties into the Dark Tower series. I started with your episode on Insomnia because, like you, I loved the book and could never figure out why a lot of people hated it. I couldn't believe how much I'd forgotten about it. One major plot I'd uh, point I'd completely forgotten was Patrick Danville. Next, I listened to your bonus episode on The Court of the Crimson King. I wanted to provide a theory that I thought that you might enjoy. Spoiler alert for Insomnia and spoiler alert for all of the Dark Tower. Okay. Danville is supposed to save two people, one of which is vital to the survival of the Dark Tower. We all know one is Roland. You questioned who the other would be and suggested Eddie, although Eddie is already dead. Here's my theory. The other person Danville is meant to save is the Crimson King himself. He draws and erases Crimson King, leaving only his eyes. His body is gone, but he's not dead. In this way, Roland can enter the tower, go through the doorway, and restart his journey and fulfill Ka is a wheel. Prophecy? Not sure what the right word is. Anyway, thought that you might find that interesting. At the end of the day, I like a couple loose ends. It allows the story to live on in your mind for just a little bit longer. I agree. The Bachman Books episode is next for me. It was the first book I had read, and The Long Walk is still one of my all-time favorites. I wish that I agreed with you. I had a version that still included... Um, not talking about that. Keep up the great work, fellow constant reader. Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you for writing in. That is a great point. I agree with you. Um, I think that that is a... I never thought of it that way. Um, and that's just a fantastic, fantastic observation. And we have Ian, who writes... Salem's Lot movie review. I thought you were a bit harsh on that one, the Toby Hooper version. You skipped through it very quickly, making me think you were looking at a shorter version, not the three-hour miniseries version we were treated to here in the UK, shown over two nights in, what, 79, 80? I saw it when I was nine and served as my introduction to King. I remember my mom saying I couldn't watch the second half because the first half scared me so much I kept her up all night, thinking that the rain tapping at my window was Ralphie Click come to get me. You were right about that scene, though. Uh, you should review the long version if you've not already. I remember eating up everything Stephen King after that. I think of him as my oldest friend. One of the first things I got was an audio cassette reading of I Am the Doorway and One for the Road from the Night Shift Collection. It was first read by Ed Bishop, and I remember listening to it late at night. The speaker pressed up to my ear so that nobody else could hear and come and take it off of me. I was especially pleasing that Road was another story from the lot. That's 40 years ago now, and I haven't heard those readings since then, the tape being long chewed up. Don't suppose you know where there's a link to download them? I'd love to hear those particular recordings again. I know there are others out there, but it's the Ed Bishop one that I crave. So anyone out there, can you help out Ian if you do know where to find those? If there's a link um, or somewhere to download them or buy them, just shoot me an email so I can uh, get that information to anyone else that wants to know, um, and I can make sure to, to get it to Ian. Um, anyway, keep up the great podcast. I do enjoy it, uh, more so uh, when I agree with you, obviously, Ian uh, from England. Ian, thank you for writing in, and, and hopefully um, our larger quartet will be able to find out that information. 
Then we have Lois, um, and Lois is the final email of uh, this episode. Lois writes, I just discovered your podcast, and I really like it so far. I know I'm writing about something you did four years ago, but I have to talk to another Stephen King fan who gets it, so I hope you don't mind me going all the way back to episode two. I generally agreed with you on your... Oh, my God. I need to stop right there. I remember... This is crazy to me now. Um, I've been thinking a lot about time and the passing of time. I, I think that anyone has a kid, um, th- the world speeds up so much faster. Uh, and you just kind of don't notice it. I mean, my daughter's going to be three next month. And uh, I, I just, I don't know what, what happened. And I remember the Stephen King cast. I remember episode two of the Stephen King cast. It's the Carrie. I mean, even without even getting farther along in Lois's email, it's the Carrie movie reviews. I remember sitting on the couch in my old house in the basement one summer night with my wife next to me, the dogs on the couch and us watching the, 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 the new version of, of Carrie thinking like, this is going to be like a cool episode for this podcast that I'm doing. And like still not knowing what I was doing with the podcast. I hadn't recorded anything yet. Um, I was just like typing out all the notes. It was just, just crazy. That was four years ago. We're going to be coming up on the fifth year anniversary of, of this podcast. Um, the After the next episode, it's going to be 200 official. There's more than 200 episodes of the Stephen King cast, but there's going to be 200 official episodes of this thing. That's crazy. It's crazy. So time is flying, guys. Appreciate the time that you have. Anyway. Lois continues, um, I generally agreed with you on your judgments of the book versus the 76 movie versus the 2013 movie, but there were a few things I disagreed on. Maybe not disagree, but have different perspective on. The softness and cheesiness of the opening of De Palma's movie. I don't believe he directed that scene that way for laughs. I think it's meant to be a juxtaposition on the animalistic behavior we will see from the girls very soon when they attack Carrie. I also think the tone of the opening speaks to how society tends to view young girls, maybe not so much now, but definitely 40 years ago, as soft, innocent, nymph-like, to borrow a word from you. In doing so, when the girls turn to feral-like beings, disgusted uh, by Carrie at a visceral level, there's a stunning 180 from what we've just witnessed, softness, slowness, etc. That's a fantastic analysis um, and probably more correct than my uh, criticism of it. Related to the above, I had to disagree with you uh, when you said that you believe the opening in the book and the 76 movie were over the top. Having been a victim of girl bullies myself as a female, I remember feeling King had done an amazing job of showing just how vicious girls can be. I'm 40 years old, so I went to school in the 90s, and I not only was a victim of the same level of bullying, but saw other girls fall victim to it too. I'm sorry. Um, I really am. I did write a short story once um, called Hopscotch, and it was published in Wax and Wayne. I think you can find it on uh, Amazon. It's a witch anthology. And it's just about a 13-year-old girl being a nasty 13-year-old girl. And at some point, I, you know, referenced that there is nothing more terrifying on this planet uh, than uh, a 13-year-old girl because of just how nasty uh, that can get um, and how they can be. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm very, very sorry for, you know, your your youth and your, you know, what your experience had been um, at, at the hands of mean girls, because uh, it can be mean. Um, so I believe you. I believe you. Um, it does seem over the top, but, um, but no, I definitely believe you. 
I may have misheard you, but I believe you said you didn't understand the reasoning for the last name Desjardins. If I misheard you, please ignore his paragraph, LOL. Desjardins is a very common French name, and, and because the book took place in Maine, where there is a very large group of French descendants, I believe the name fits in very well as a last name heard round Chamberlain, Maine. Um, interestingly, it translates to garden French. I'm not sure if there was a further meaning to her last name that King meant to, but I thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, that is me being ignorant and not understanding um, last names and... Uh, the locale, uh, I didn't even know how it was pronounced. I thought it was pronounced Desjardin. Uh, and so, yes, it makes total sense that it's a French name. Um, it makes total sense. And that shame on me for just, like I said, being ignorant. I also wanted to add that I totally agree with you on getting ready for the prom scene in the 76 version. It's a fun break from the heaviness of the rest of the movie, and I may be overanalyzing it, but I always thought that the Palma filmed it that way to emphasize the youthness of the characters as well as using that scene as a parallel to the iconic prom scene. What do you think? I agree. I also agreed with you on the annoyance that Carrie White invites due to her stunning level of weakness. Obviously, it doesn't make it okay to bully her, but I thought it was masterful of King to let Constant Reader feel in some way how some of White's tormentors must feel. It also adds a level of understanding to why Carrie is ostracized instead of it just being about the other kids being mean, though they certainly were. Lastly, I loved your observation about how we hold Margaret White accountable for Carrie's issues, even though she, Margaret, has a mental illness, but then give Carrie a pass on her behaviors also due to a mental anomaly. Of all the times I've discussed the book and movie, I never saw it before. Well done. Thank you. Well, I really hope you read this and love to hear your thoughts. Looking forward to binge listening to your podcast. Thanks for doing it. Lois, Lois, thank you for writing in. These are all great observations um, and... Um and I, I completely agree with you there. Um, so anyone that hasn't written in, um, actually, sorry, anyone that has written in and I haven't written back to, I apologize. Um, even though I have, uh, you know, I, ha I have had time on my hands in the sense that I haven't been recording episodes. I haven't had a lot of time in my hands to, to really do anything regarding uh, the podcast. So I do apologize. And for anyone um, that has written in, um, and I haven't written back to, and I haven't read the letter uh, or the email on the podcast, don't worry, I will get to it. And anyone that hasn't written in, feel free to write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com with um, two topics in particular that I, I really want us to have a conversation on. One is the fan casting from uh, the stand. Who do you want to play these characters? Who is your Stu Redman? Who is your Nick Andros, your Franny Coltsmith, your um, Glenn Bateman, your Lloyd Henry, your Randall Flagg, your Judge, your Mother Abigail? Um, who is your Tom Cullen? Who is your Trash Can Man? Um, who are the characters? Who is your Larry Underwood? Who is your Harold Lauder? Who do you picture in these roles? Um, who would you love to see? You know, think outside the box. Um, don't just think of A-listers. Think of people that you really think could embody these characters. Um, and really do them justice. So think about that and then write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. The other thing I would like you to do is to write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com and provide me the list of the short stories you would like to see adapted into Creep Show um, if Creep Show gets picked up for season two. Which Stephen King or Joe Hill or other um, storytellers, what stories would you like to see turned into hour long features? Um, in this anthology format. I think that this is a, a fun way to start us getting the, the conversation rolling. So 
Um, so just feel free to write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And uh, even though I didn't read any of the iTunes reviews uh, with this episode, guys, this is the lifeblood of the Stephen King cast. Um, you know, when I started in 2014, there were some, you know, Stephen King podcasts out there. There's a lot now. There's a lot. And um, there's one um, that really has, uh, you know, it, it, it's a similar um, concept um, and it's really surpassed me in, in reviews. And, you know, healthy competition is good. I just don't want to be um, ever um, uh, be made... Uh, through no fault of anyone's, just uh, made irrelevant. Um, and uh, iTunes reviews would really, really help me out. So if you are a fan of this podcast and do have a couple minutes on your hands, a review will will really help me out. A written review on uh, on iTunes will really keep me um, in the, the, the higher um, results of a search for, for Stephen King. So that thank you guys. That, that would be great. So, as I record this, it is um, February 18th, I think, and it has been a long time since I had recorded. I think this might be the longest stretch I've ever gone on the Stephen King cast, um, not recording. So I apologize, everyone. When it's time for me to finally hang up the microphone, I'll let you know, so you don't ever have to worry that if I don't record an episode, then I'm done. That's Until I tell you otherwise, there are still more Stephen King cast episodes coming your way. And we're about to hit a, a new cycle of Stephen King stuff to talk about. We're going to have trailers to talk about. We're going to have the Doctor Sleep trailer coming at some point. We're going to have the um, Pet Cemetery movie uh, to talk about. We're going to have Creep Show. We're going to have Nosferatu. We're going to have The Institute coming out. We're going to have, when I eventually get around to Mr. Mercedes, I will review the second season of Mr. Mercedes. Um, so there, there's definitely, when um, In the Tall Grass comes out, I'll review In the Tall Grass, the Joe Hill uh, collection uh, coming out in the fall, I'll review this. So there's there's definitely Stephen King related um, and Joe Hill relates it chapter two. I didn't even talk about that at all, but I mean the the trailer for that. I mean this is going to be coming out in September. So we have Doctor Sleep coming out in uh, November. We have it chapter two coming out in September. Nothing, nothing has dropped yet, which means that they're gonna. The original teaser, I believe, came out in April when the first movie. When It Chapter 1 came out, was that 2017? Yeah, that was 2017. September of 2017. So the first trailer came out in April of 2017. So I would imagine that we're very close to um, some teaser. Because it's wrapped, It the, the principal photography has wrapped. Um, so we'll be seeing that. And that will be great. Um, so there, there is def and then of course the, the, we're going to be picking up steam at some point on the Tommyknockers adaptation. So um, there's a lot. There's there's definitely going to be good stuff coming our way, and there's going to be a lot for me to be able to talk about, and for you to be able to share your thoughts as well. And um, last year in April, I was taking notes on uh, Lock and Key by Joe Hill. And I never got around to recording any of my thoughts on Lock and Key, but I have all of my thoughts um, on this amazing, amazing uh, comic book series uh, by Joe Hill, um, Lock and Key. So I this summer, 
I will be diving into that. Um, and I have not reviewed 20th Century Ghosts for the purpose of this podcast, which I still need to do. I still need to record uh, my thoughts on Blaze by Stephen King, Colorado Kid. So there, there's definitely some catch-up that I, I do need to get to. Um, so don't fear. Don't worry. There's still stuff for me to talk about. I will. I am not going away anytime soon, even though I do take these breaks every now and then. All right? And don't forget, um, I do have uh, uh, Hanging with Agent Cooper, a Twin Peaks podcast, um, and I, I hope to be uh, recording my final episodes on that as well. And um, I might actually publish a couple episodes on the Stephen King cast uh, feed um, for listening pleasure as well. So guys, thank you for listening for the last hour and a half. Thank you for being patient. Um over the last couple months as I have not recorded. I hope all is well with all of you. Um, And please feel free to write in and leave a review anytime you have a chance. So I don't know when the next episode is going to be. It might be two more months. It might be tomorrow. Who knows? Um, But there will be another episode for sure. Um, Until then, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here next time. Sorry, maybe he's trying to finish the, the outro. Maybe. Do you want to say it? No, now you're quiet. Oh, okay. May you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.